1: The Satipatthana discourse, which is the discourse on establishing uh, mindfulness, the four ways of establishing mindfulness. He opens it with one very bold and unambiguous statement. Says this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and grief for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbāna, the highest peace. Namely, the four foundations of mindfulness. So it's quite a statement that this practice that we're doing, the cultivation of the four foundations of mindfulness is the direct path to liberation. But an obvious question, I think, then arises, and perhaps particularly the first day of a retreat, that is, how exactly does mindfulness, you know, feeling a breath, feeling a step, watching our thoughts, how does this lead to liberation? You may have wondered that today because the actual practice seems so kind of ordinary and commonplace and uh, be mindful of a step be mindful of breath be mindful of sensation so we're practicing mindfulness but how exactly does it lead to freedom this question has particular particular relevance these days with the teaching of mindfulness happening in so many different venues you know not only in meditation retreats but in schools in business in health professions even in the military you know mindfulness is being taught and in those situations I think very often the goal doesn't seem to be liberation but rather perhaps de-stressing you know stress reduction or greater ease or perhaps untangling some of the emotional and psychological knots, difficulties, becoming more productive. And of course, all these aims are worthy. So I'm very much in favor of people practicing mindfulness in any way at whatever level. But they do not necessarily lead to the great potential of the awakened mind. what Kamala talked about last night when we took refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha. We're taking refuge in a potential for enlightenment, for awakening, for liberation. Of actually freeing our minds from the very deeply entrenched habit patterns of greed and of hatred. You know, in the sleep of delusion, the sleep of ignorance. So in order to actualize this potential, we need to understand that this practice of mindfulness is not an end in itself. So we have to put our practice in a larger context. It's not simply about being mindful. But rather, it's a training of the mind that serves the greater purpose, the greater end of wisdom. Some of you may be familiar with the Burmese site outside of Tejania. And one of his little booklets has a wonderful title. Awareness is not enough. Because there is so much emphasis and a necessary emphasis on mindfulness, on awareness. But it's not enough. We need to use this quality of mind, this power of the mind, this presence of mind, to then investigate what is true. So... We need to understand our practice, and even from the first day, to frame the efforts that we're making, to be mindful, to be present, to be present without grasping, without aversion, to be connecting with what's arising in the service of understanding, in the service of wisdom. So one of the simplest and most accessible and most transformative uh, avenues for this investigation. And investigation really is another word in the, in the Abhidhamma, in the Buddhist psychology. Investigation is another word for the wisdom factor. Right? So it's not simply being present, we're present so that we can investigate. Okay, what is true in this moment? So one of the most accessible avenues for the development of wisdom is to practice an increasingly refined awareness of impermanence. This cannot be overstated. The story I read in book about Suzuki Roshi, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. Somebody said to him, one of one of his students, I've been listening to your lectures for years, but I don't understand. Could you please put it in a nutshell? Can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? Suzuki Roshi said, everything changes. The implications of this statement are enormous. You know, we all know that everything changes. So it's not an esoteric truth. It's not a hidden truth. You could go up to anybody on the streets of Woodacre, San Francisco, people who have not meditated for a moment in their lives and ask them, do things change? Everybody would say yes. So we all know this, but on what level do we know it? We know it intellectually. We know it conceptually. But we need to go from that level. We understand it and we grasp the idea of it. But we need to go from that level to the level of direct, immediate, experience of things changing as they're changing. You see the difference? It's not just knowing everything changes. We have to be seeing that directly. And that's what mindfulness allows us to do. So it's not just being mindful of what's happening, but it's being mindful in the service of this understanding. When we truly and deeply are experiencing the truth of change, the effect of that is that our hearts and our minds relax a lot. We let go of struggle, we let go of many kinds of suffering. And we can see this clearly, I think all of us have seen it clearly, with respect to our changing bodies. If we are attached to our bodies staying the same, staying a certain way, when they change, as they always do, do any of you have a body that has not changed? <laughs> we. <laughs> If we're attached to them staying a certain way, we are going to suffer when they do change. And they will, this is just nature. But it's quite different and it's often difficult to see that these changes that inevitably take place are not a mistake. But so often, and I've seen this in myself so many times, you know, when we're feeling well, things are going along. Nothing is hurting very much, you know, and our lives seem to be flowing along quite smoothly. And then something happens, you know, something changes. And whether expressed specifically or not, very often the feeling is, why me? You know, what did I do wrong? If only I were a little more on top of things, this wouldn't have happened. But it's not that we've done anything wrong. It's simply the nature of things, the nature of this body, the nature of the mind, the nature of everything in the world, to change. So this is the Dharma. This is what happens to everyone and to everything. So one of the mantras that really has helped me a lot, and I've mentioned this over the years many times, which arose after I had a particularly unexpected accident and things changed. And so the mantra that came to my mind and has been so helpful is anything can happen anytime. And it's interesting because people might hear that, anything can happen anytime. And at first it might seem a little fearful. You know, we get to, def- oh my God, anything can happen anytime. But the actual effect of that, of reminding myself of that, was that everything relaxed. I didn't have to live in this protective shield trying to keep unfortunate things from happening. Because there's just the realization that our life is a process of change and anything can happen anytime. And so when things do happen, we know it. We're accepting of it. We're with it. We're actualizing some wisdom. Seeing clearly and repeatedly, and this is really your task during this retreat, This is what the mindfulness is in the service of. Seeing clearly and seeing closely and seeing repeatedly the changing nature of our experience, it deconditions this very deep habit of grasping, of being attached, of clinging. The more we're seeing it, the more we're right with the experience of change, the mind begins to let go. What's particularly fascinating, and this becomes very obvious on retreat, you know, when you've given yourself the gift of these nine days, nothing to do except to be paying attention and to be watching your process. So one of the most fascinating things we see is that for some inexplicable reason, we're also in the habit of holding on to states of suffering. Okay, we can kind of see at least what the rationale is for trying to be attached to pleasant things. Even though as a strategy, it's not that helpful because they're going to change. But why in the world would we hold on to what's unpleasant? And yet, you know, we hold on to states of anger or jealousy or envy or pride or the whole list of afflictive emotions, which we get caught up in. On one retreat, it was a self-retreat. Just before I went into the retreat, there was some kind of disturbing incident that happened. I can't even quite remember now what it was. Uh, It was quite a few years ago. But on the retreat... I was watching my mind at times be in this open, spacious, easeful place and then thoughts of what had happened would come and I'd get lost in the thought and it would create a lot of turmoil and, you know, aversion and whatever it was. And I saw this happen again and again. And at a certain point I was just asking myself, I was watching my mind with amazement, I "Okay." Peace? Suffering. (laughs) Oh, let's suffer. (laughs) Why the mind went to that, it was just... One yogi, once in an interview, came in and said, the big report on their mind was, (laughs) the mind has no pride. (laughs) (laughs) It will do anything, and it does do anything, (laughs) and often it does things which just creates suffering, like holding on to these states. It's like holding on to a hot burning coal. What's really interesting to notice about the seductive power of the world is that when we look back at all of our past experience from this perspective, from the perspective of the moment. And we just look back, you know, over the years or all of our past experience has this ephemeral dreamlike nature. You know, the experiences we had years ago or a year ago or a month ago, or even this morning, where are they now? You know, these experiences that we're so entangled in. From the perspective looking back, we can see so clearly their impermanent, ephemeral nature. But somehow, and this is, <laughs> this is what's so extraordinary about our minds. So we all know this. this is, we know it from our own experience. And yet when we look ahead we become fascinated by the possible, by all the great potentials and possibilities of what we can do we become entranced by them you know most of us this is our lives we're looking forward or leaning forward anticipating the next hit of experience you know the next event in our lives the next day of work, the next project that we're undertaking, you know, the next vacation, the next relationship. We're just looking, we're leaning forward into the unfolding of our lives. Even leaning forward into the next breath. Have you noticed sometimes when you're sitting, you're with this breath in order to come to the next one? Do you think the next one is going to be any more fulfilling than this one? <laughs> but, <laughs> but this is the habit of our minds. It's, it's like, even though we know that all of these experiences that we're so looking forward to and anticipating and wanting and leaning into, we know that they will soon be past. They'll be like all the others. And as we get older, I'm sure most of you have had this experience all these changes seem to be happening faster and faster you know you're probably familiar with that story of someone who who commented that when she turned 55 breakfast happens every 15 minutes (laughs) and isn't it like that i mean it's breakfast again (laughs) and what happened The great paradox of the spiritual life is that as objects of wanting, as objects of desire, all these changing experiences of life leave us ultimately unsatisfied. Why? Because they don't last. So they may be pleasant and we may enjoy them, But they're not going to bring us to a place of completion. As objects of wanting or desire, we'll experience them and we'll have whatever pleasure they bring, and then they're gone. So as objects of wanting, they leave us unfulfilled. But the very same experiences, the very same experiences of our lives as objects of mindfulness, as objects of investigation, become the very vehicle for investigation and liberation, for freedom. So it's not a question of pulling back from experience. That's not what the implication of change is about. It's not that we see everything is changing And so then we pull back from experience, withdraw from it. It's rather learning to not hold on. And it's the difference in English. There are two words which, especially in the context of Buddhist teachings, often are used synonymously, but actually have very different flavors, very different connotations. It's the difference between the experience of detachment and non-attachment. Now in English, when we use the word detachment, which is often used, you know, in kind of Buddhist circles, but it really implies you know a pulling away, you know, almost an indifference. Whereas non-attachment keeps us totally engaged with what's arising, but without clinging, without holding on. So there's an important, there's an important distinction here. So liberating insight into impermanence And our practice of this comes in many different ways and on many different levels. From science, we know of the birth and death of stars, you know, of galaxies, just just the the largest scale of phenomena. Right? Looking on that scale, yeah, whole galaxies come into existence and have their lifespan and and die to the energy movements on the smallest scale of subatomic particles <clears throat> i want to read something about impermanence capturing the motion of an electron within an atom sounds like an impossible task not least because the shuffling of an electron between orbits or escaping the nucleus of the atom takes just attoseconds or a billionth of a billionth of a second. Okay, to put this in perspective, an attosecond is to a second what the blink of an eye is to 10 billion years. Unphazed scientists have lighted on ways to operate on such infinitesimal time scales. <laughs> an atosecond to a second is a blink of an eye to 10 billion years, and that's how fast, you know, that's the time frame for an electron switching orbits. And we think things are stable and fixed, and solid. So it's true that our ordinary perception, even though obviously it can be measured somehow, and it's, it's kind of mind-boggling to even imagine how they can measure that, but I guess they can. But for our ordinary perception, we're probably not operating on the level of attoseconds. If any of you are, please let me know. <laughs> but still, as our mindfulness and concentration and investigation gets stronger, our perception gets much more refined, and there's something which I call NPMs, which are noticings per minute. You know in the beginning in the beginning can be 20 years. You know, Maybe our NPMs, you know, notings per minute, maybe we notice 10 things per minute, or 15 or 20. But as the concentration deepens and gets stronger and the mindfulness more alert and the investigation sharp, we can be noticing many, many, many things in a minute. You know, hundreds, maybe even thousands. We see directly even though it's not on the level of subatomic particles, but we can see and experience directly that what feels so solid and fixed in our bodies and in our minds is really completely insubstantial and in constant change. And we can see this even in the ordinary experiences of our meditation. And so this is something I would like to suggest you look at from now it's it's, you don't even have to build up any you don't have to be here five days or eight days we can begin to experience the refinement of our perception of change in very ordinary experiences in a breath in a step in a sound just as an example Can you? Normally, you say, What do you hear? I hear the sound of a bell, as if it's one thing. Is that one thing? And the quieter our minds are, shh. Now, how many NPMs are in that? A lot. We're right there in the, it's like the instantaneous, the momentariness of the sound arising and passing and arising, and passing, it's, it's a continual flow. When you're feeling a breath, it's so easy just to kind of stay almost in the conceptual level of breathing in and there's an in-breath and an out-breath. But if you're feeling the breath carefully and it's just an ordinary breath, it's no special breathing exercise, we're just feeling it carefully. It's just like the sound. There's so many different sensations. Just now, why don't we just do an experiment? If you move your arm, and just move it slowly and feel just in that one little movement, how many subtle sensations? A lot. And what's so interesting, and this is why this kind of attentiveness and mindfulness is so important when we are feeling this simple, it's just a movement and it could be in walking when we're feeling that the concept of hand or arm has fallen away and we are just in, shh, it's just like the, the sound of a bell. It's just, you know, the momentary this is clear, it's so simple. This is not complicated, and we don't need any great powers to experience this. This is just part of our ordinary lives. When we look at familiar experiences with this kind of attentiveness, with this kind of care... the ordinary superficial level of perception begins to fall away and we begin to experience things on a whole different level. Just like when we're in the movement and we're right there. We're free of the concept of arm or hand. And we're just in the flow of changing elements. Just as an example of the striking difference, between our conceptual, ordinary, conventional view and what in fact is really happening. Think of a time, you know, you went to a really good absorbing movie and we're caught up in the story, we're ca- caught up in the action. Lots of feeling, perhaps lots of different emotion, But is anybody actually getting chased or falling in love or dying? No. Really what's happening is just pixels of light on the screen. But our mind is not seeing it on that level and we wouldn't probably pay the 10 bucks to go if we were seeing it on that, although we might. That could be an interesting... No, we're going to be absorbed. I mean, that's, that's the reason we go to the movies, to get distracted. <laughs> but when we stop to look, we really see that the apparent reality is not what's going on at all. So we can bring that same kind of awareness in the retreat by dropping down into the flow of momentary change on the simplest things, on hearing a sound on the movement, you know, of a step, or the movement of the body, or a breath, or anything. We actually can drop down to a whole different level of what's going on, and it's on that level that we begin to see very clearly the impermanent momentary nature. You know, when we're on the concept level of arm or leg. Yeah, I have an arm today, I have an arm yesterday, and probably an arm tomorrow. And so because the concept is the same, we have this idea that the reality is unchanging. When we drop down to the experience level though, then we see that it's all a flow of constant change. So all of this is not to suggest that we don't engage with the story and the dramas and the movies of our lives. Just with the perception of our ordinary conventional reality. We do. And we do engage with all of that. But if we can also see the deeper level, if we can experience what's underneath it, if we can be seeing the changing nature of what's arising, then we don't fall so easily, even as we're engaged in the story, we don't fall so easily into reactivity, we don't fall so easily into suffering. Wisdom also comes from a careful attention to impermanence in ways that we already know but often overlook and these can become the everyday daily meditations on impermanence on seeing in this profoundly different way you know the, the changes changes are, they're all around us there are changes in nature you know the changes of the seasons the changes of the daily weather patterns, the huge changes in climate, in the environment. There are changes, even the whole rise and fall of civilizations. You know, it's, just, it's so interesting, kind of staying connected to the news and reading what's happening, and it's so, first, it's largely depressing. But it's so compelling. Just I just before coming out to Spirit Rock, uh, I was teaching in Europe. I was teaching a retreat in Denmark. But before going up to Denmark, I was with some friends uh, in Greece, which was really lovely. So we were on the Greek island of Santorini. I don't know if any of you have been there. Beautiful, beautiful island in the Aegean. 1600 BC, which geologically speaking is not a very long time. There was a huge volcanic eruption and it covered the whole island in 200 feet of ash. So everybody was killed on the island. It was this this massive eruption. In recent years, they have been excavating one of the towns, that had been buried in the ash, and it's amazing. It's an amazing archaeological site. It was just so interesting. You're, you're kind of uh, walking along, you know, where the streets were, and they've excavating build- three-story buildings, 600 BC, indoor, uh, primitive, but indoor plumbing. You know. Storefronts with windows, you know, into. And so it's just so easy to imagine, you know, that this this was a town populated by, I don't know, thousands and thousands of people living their lives in as vivid and compelling a way as we are. And where is it now? You know, it's an archaeological site, but fascinating. And we will be the same. So the change, whether we are seeing it on a momentary level, whether we're seeing it within the time frame of a single life, whether we're seeing it in the time frame of thousands of years, this is what's happening on every single level of our lives. So can we take this in and can we begin to explore in our own lives now the truth, the truth of these changes that are taking place, not on the conceptual level. It's to be seeing it directly. Now we can look at the changing nature of our relationships, our work, and most intimately, and here is the great laboratory for doing it, we can be exploring the changing nature of our bodies and minds. This is the purpose of being mindful. Mindfulness is not enough, but it's the indispensable tool for actually seeing the changing nature. So... Things are disappearing and new things arising not only every day and not only every hour, but in every single moment. So, I'd like to suggest or offer a little memory test for you. If you can remember between now and the end of the talk, okay. And if I remember, I'll remind you. <laughs> when the talk ends, just as it a very specific experiment, watch what happens and notice the flow of changes as you leave the hall. So there's the flow of changes as you go from sitting position to standing. How many changes in the body are involved in that simple move? And then the changes as you've been walking, feeling the different sensations. And then as you're moving, the changing sights and sounds. Be aware of the arising and passing of thoughts in the mind. And notice what happens to each of these experiences. Moment after moment? Do they last? So, this is not complicated. It's completely ordinary, but it's so ordinary that we have basically stopped paying attention to it. You know, how often, when the talks end and you leave the hall, how often do you remember to actually be highlighting? The awareness of this process of momentary change that's taking place, you know, of sensations and sights and sounds and thoughts. And it's just moment after moment. Our life is this flow of change. In order to do this and to do it consistently throughout the day, So I offer this kind of experiment just at this one time at the end of the talk as you leave the hall to give you a sense of it. But that's really what our practice is about. Throughout the whole day, can we be attending to the changing nature, the flow of changes that are continually taking place? Because that's what deconditions the habit of grasping. The habit of clinging. So, the key to be able to do this is a little catchphrase which will serve you well during the retreat. It's to be undertaking the practice being relaxed but not casual. Do you get a sense of the difference? It is very easy to fall into a pattern of casual attention. It's what I call more or less mindful. (laughs) You know, we're kind of mindful. (laughs) We're somewhat connected to what's going on, but we're not really connected. We're not really there. (laughs) And so watch out for when the mind slips into this casual way of practice. But it doesn't mean that we get tight or tense or struggling or even efforting. We can be completely relaxed. So, for example, when we were moving our arms, it's it's like doing Tai Chi or classical dance. I once once saw... some Japanese classical dance, it was amazing. The movements were so slow and precise, and it was so incredibly graceful. And so it's not, you know, doing this, being, being non-casual, doesn't mean that we get tight behind it. We settle in in a completely relaxed and easeful way, but there, really there. So this is something to practice. You know, this is this is not our usual way of going through our day or our life. So we need to remind ourselves. The clearer. We perceive. Directly, the clearer we are actually seeing the flow of change being with it, the less we cling. The less we cling, the less we suffer. it's very simple. So the Buddha gave an, a little uh, instruction, which I had read many, many times you know over the years. but it's only in the last few years <coughs> I began to reframe how I was either listening to or reading the teachings. And this has been a very powerful reframing for me in, in my recent retreats. So instead of reading you know, <clears throat> the different teachings and the texts and the discourses, instead of reading them as descriptions, which I had been doing, I started reading them as instructions. Do you see the difference? Huge difference. So I'll I'll read one little <coughs> couple of lines here and you'll see how you can relate to them in these two different ways. So the Buddha said, in seeing impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When it doesn't cling, it is not agitated. When not agitated, it personally attains nibbana. So this is a pretty that's can't have more of a shortcut than this. <laughs> you know, seeing impermanence, not clinging, not agitated nibbana. <laughs> okay, so I had read that, you know, a million times. It's... But just, uh, it was recently, I thought, okay, this is instru- There's an, an instruction here. So what I started doing was paying attention to my mind when it was perceiving impermanence. Right? In times when I was really with the flow, and then I checked to see in those moments was the mind clinging or not. And I said, yeah, when I'm seeing impermanence, the mind is not clinging. But it's looking to our experience, it's not just taking that as a description, it's actually looking to see, oh, the mind is not clinging at this time. And then when it's not clinging, it's not agitated. So I checked that out. Okay, when the mind is not clinging, what is the quality of the mind? When it's not clinging, oh, surprise, the Buddha was right. It's not agitated. And it's in that place of non-agitation Really, it's a place of great peace of mind that we see the possibility of the mind opening to Nibbāna, or the highest peace. Do you see what I mean about taking these words and then really looking at our own minds as we're doing them, as we're following the instruction? So, Lady Sayadaw, and that's spelled L-E-D-I. It's not a Lady Sayadaw. Uh, he was a great. He was one of the great Burmese masters. Um, he lived around the, the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. A great scholar and a great practitioner, of voluminous writings. He said, not seeing arising and passing away, not seeing impermanence, is ignorance. While seeing all phenomena as impermanent is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. It can't be clearer. And that's why I said in the beginning, this is perhaps the most accessible doorway for us because impermanence and change and the flow of things arising and passing is so obvious as soon as we look, as soon as we pay attention to it. careful observation of some other obvious truths of impermanence can also often jolt us out of complacency, out of the deeply rooted habit patterns of clinging and of attachment. And perhaps the most obvious and ignored reflection is that the end of birth is death. Life is only getting shorter and shorter and shorter for all of us. We are all in the queue. Now, there's a great Indian epic, the Mahabharata, and in this epic, uh, one of the sages in the book, he says that one of the most remarkable things in the world is that we see people dying all around us and yet we don't think it will happen to us. And it's so, of course, we know intellectually, we all know that we will die, but until we are confronted with the immediacy of it, and when that happens, sometimes it is a great awakening and and there's great potential at that time, we we don't take it in. So the Buddha offered some powerful reflections on this, which I have found extraordinarily helpful. And again, they're completely obvious, but he has a little, he has a little twist at the end, which is really good. So he says, what is subject to old age grows old. And I am not exempt. What is subject to illness becomes ill. And I am not exempt. What is subject to death dies. And I am not exempt. And I just found that little tag phrase at the end Such a powerful reminder because in some bizarre way we know that we get old and we get sick and we're going to die. But in some bizarre way we think that we're exempt from it. And just to remind ourselves, so I would do this on retreat. In, in less dramatic circumstances, but I would be on retreat, and as you well know, you know, sometimes you get up in the morning and your back hurts, or you're doing some walking and your knee feels a little off, or something. You know, or you feel ill, you don't feel so well. Every time something like this happened to me on retreat, I would remind myself, and I am not exempt. And it was just such a powerful reminder that all of these things are not mistakes. They are the nature of having a mind and body. This is the Dharma. But as Al Gore said, it is an inconvenient truth. (laughs) We don't like to see it. We don't like to acknowledge it. But of course, the not acknowledging it just creates more suffering. So sometimes people might think that all these reflections, you know, on impermanence and death and dying and illness are kind of morbid. And why would we want to do that? It's really something to avoid and a lot of our culture is all about the avoidance of these things. But they are all reflections on what is true. And it's not even esoteric truths. They're very obvious truths. They're all reflections on the great truth of change. And that is the doorway, seeing it on all of the levels I've talked about, seeing the change over and over again, it's repeatedly. This is really the doorway to liberating the mind, to freeing us from attachment and clinging. So given this great truth of change, It really challenges us to look at how we're living and what we're relying on about the choices we make. And one little exercise that I found helpful is at times just to imagine myself on my deathbed. And I give myself a little leeway here because I put myself in bed (laughs) and it's comfy. (laughs) <laughs> but it might not be, as we well know. But okay, it's just for the sake of our imagination. But actually, you could imagine it in any way, you know, and you should in, in some way that really makes it vivid. So, from that perspective, from the perspective of, okay, this this is it. This is the last moments of our lives. To ask the question well, what would I have wanted to do with my life? What would I have wanted to accomplish? What values are really important? And I think that from the perspective of our death, it can give very illuminating answers. You know, and So if we do this, it's a chance to really just look at our lives in a conscious way. And maybe begin to make choices or continue to make them that are in alignment with our highest values. The liberating power of seeing impermanence, seeing this truth deeply, is expressed in one very startling statement of the Buddhas. He said, it's better to live for a single day Seeing the arising, the rapid arising and passing of phenomena, than to live a hundred years without seeing it. So, this is amazing. I mean, given all the good things that we could do in a hundred years of life, the Buddha is saying that seeing even for a single day the rapid rising and passing of phenomena more valuable. Why? Because when we see it, when we understand this life process on that level, we are really beginning to cut the root of clinging and attachment and suffering. So it's very profound. And we don't want to overlook it because of the ordinariness of it. We want to use the ordinariness of this flow of change. And actually, that becomes a vehicle for our awakening. Okay, there's one line in the Buddha's teachings, which I repeat every year that I come here, because many people got enlightened hearing just this line. So maybe some of you accomplished this last year. (laughs) Try again this year. (laughs) It's so simple. And if we could really take it in, it accomplishes everything. So what he said was, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So what has the nature to arise? Everything. Every single aspect of our experience in the mind, in the body, inside, outside. Everything that has the nature to arise, which is everything, has the nature to pass away. So if we can be seeing that and training ourselves to see it, on all the different timescales. You know, whether you think back a year and say, yeah, all of that's gone, or you think back a week or a day or a moment, just on all of these different timescales and in the mind, in the body, in nature, just again and again to be seeing this truth of change. This is what liberates the mind from grasping. Okay, so through this very direct, intimate, ongoing experience of change, which is what this whole retreat is about, the mindfulness, the being mindful, is in the service of this investigation. That's why we're being mindful, in order to see the truth of change. So as we practice that, being relaxed, completely relaxed in it, but not casual. Seeing it, reflecting on it, that whatever arises within any time frame, whatever arises will also pass away. We see that all experience is part of an endlessly passing show of experience. It's like the, the flow of a river or like water over a waterfall, there's nothing static, there's nothing constant, there's nothing which stays the same. So seeing this again and again, and seeing it repeatedly, reorients our minds towards care and loving-kindness, rather than attachment and It re-or- reorients our minds towards letting go rather than clinging and holding on. So, deepening our insight into this truth, which is obvious on all levels, it's completely accessible to us, it reorients our minds to the potential, the possibility of freedom. I'd just like to close with a description of the enlightenment moment of a Zen Japanese nun. She was an 18th century, she was the abbess of a nunnery. Her name was Tejitsu. And this story was in a book called uh, Women of the Way. By Sally Tisdale. So, this is a description of Tejitsu's moment of realization. She saw that all phenomena arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that the knowing of all this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground nothing to lean on, stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind, and let go, and fell into the midst of everything. That last image is so beautiful. She opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So that's what our practice is. Through the seeing of impermanence, over and over and over again, steadily, throughout the day, we are opening the clenched fists in our minds.